So he was very grateful. He wouldn't even let me carry the bag of ice that I brought in with me through the door, just in case. In fact, uh, if I was to have a race with Terry Archer right now, I don't know if I'd put my money on me. But if he left his cane behind, I think I could take him. But anyway, this morning we're continuing on with our series on the lesser-known characters in the New Testament. And uh, I was assigned to speak on Thomas. And there's not a lot, when you think about it, in the book, or in the New Testament, talking about Thomas. But in a little bit of interaction that's recorded of Thomas, there's a lot to be gleaned from that. Thomas, who's also called Didymus, and uh, you'll come across that if you read about Thomas. He's mentioned in the Bible only 11 times, and a lot of those times he's listed as part of a list of the disciples that were doing this or that, but uh, in several places the disciples are listed and his name is among them. Now Didymus is a literal Greek translation from the Hebrew Thomas. Thomas means twin in both the Hebrew Thomas and the Greek Didymus. And that kind of leads us to think that uh, Thomas had a twin sibling. It doesn't mention that specifically in the Bible, so we don't know for sure, but I think it's uh, safe to assume that's a very strong possibility that Thomas had a twin. The Bible doesn't even tell us how Jesus picked Thomas. There are accounts in the, uh, in the Gospels of how Jesus picked people like Simon, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, but nothing about Thomas, nothing about him how he started his relationship with Jesus. But boy, there's a lot in there about how that relationship climaxed after Jesus' resurrection. Before we get into that encounter, the encounter that gave him the moniker Doubting Thomas, I want to take a look at two other instances in which Thomas is recorded as uh, having interaction with Jesus in the Bible. The first one is found in John 11, Verse 16. And all three of these accounts are found in John, and that's where we'll be taking a lot of our text from this morning. But John chapter 11, verse 16 reads, Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the account of Jesus speaking with his disciples just before he went back to Bethany in the region of Judea, where his um, friend someone he loved very much, Lazarus, was gravely ill. And there was a miracle that was to be performed there. But before they went there, Thomas made this statement. Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas in this narrative, I don't think can be accused of being a doubter. Pessimistic perhaps, but not a doubter. In fact, I think he showed some leadership in calling the other disciples, let's All go with Jesus, that we may die also with him. That statement, let us go with him, that we may also die with him, would prove to be prophetic in the years to come, when indeed that was the fate of a number of the disciples who followed Jesus. It would lead them ultimately to their death. Now some interpret the verse as Thomas was referring to the hymn, as referring to Lazarus. There is some argument in that, and another way of saying it would be, let us go and die, for what have we to hope for if Jesus returns into Judea 
Lately they attempted to stone him, and now they will put him to death. And we also, like Lazarus, shall be dead. Though there is some argument for that, personally, I believe that logically, Thomas is speaking with reference to Jesus in this point. And another way of looking at it that way, it would be as if Thomas was saying, he, that is Jesus, is about to throw himself into danger. The Jews lately sought his life and will again. They will put him to death, but let us not forsake him. Let us also go and die with him. You see, Thomas and the rest of the disciples were talking with Jesus about returning to Judea. And this was a dangerous place for Jesus because um, there were a number of people there who were looking to take his life. And because Jesus was in the midst of their conversation, was the central part of the conversation, that's why I lean more towards that Thomas is speaking about Jesus here because he would have been on the forefront of their mind. However you look at it, and I'll leave it for you to come to your own conclusion, there's an important lesson here that has to be observed. You see, earlier when Jesus told his disciples, let's go back to Judea, the region where Lazarus lived, the disciples did try to dissuade him. They said, but Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there. They were very concerned about Jesus, and no doubt concerned about their own safety. Now what's important to note here, whether you believe in Thomas is a doubter or not by nature, it has to be acknowledged that Thomas was prepared to follow Jesus, even unto death. Unfortunately, though, when put to the test, Thomas, just like Peter, couldn't fulfill that part of his statement at that time. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the mob came to arrest him, all the disciples fled at that point. Later on in the story, it's a different matter. And as I said, a number of the disciples did follow Jesus' teaching, even unto their own death. So there's the first interaction that we have with Thomas and Jesus Christ. There's a second interaction found a little farther on in John chapter 14, verse 5, when Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? See, this verse is part of the account of Jesus and is telling the disciples that he has to leave them. And he's told them this a few times, but he's telling them here, I have to leave you but I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And if I do that, I'm going to return for you and you can follow me. You see, before Thomas makes the statement, Jesus said to them in John 14, verses 1 to 3, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. And it's the next sentence that Jesus says after that that really tripped up Thomas, when Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. 
How can we know the way? Thomas's statement is a reflection of the perplexity that was going on in the disciples at that point. Things were starting to move at lightning speed with the disciples and their relationship with Jesus, and Jesus was trying to keep them up to speed on what was happening in his ministry. And though they were trying, though they were accepting of a lot of the statements that Jesus was made, it's like they had bits and pieces that they understood, but they didn't have the complete puzzle picture in front of them. They had all the information, but they couldn't put it together. Not until it was after the resurrection, after the intervention and the advent of the Holy Spirit in their lives, did they really bring everything together into that complete picture. But there was a time when uh, their heads must have been spinning, wondering, what is Jesus trying to tell me? Again, I don't see Thomas's character as being that of a doubter in general. Perplexed? But I don't think he was doubting the statements that Jesus was making. And it's tempting to say to somebody like Thomas, don't you get it? All the information is there. Why can't you just put it all together and understand? Where's your faith? All we have to do to understand some of that is look at our own lives today. When we read the Bible, we have some information, some bits and pieces that Jesus has left us with when he's going to return. In Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, Jesus gives some clues to his disciples and to us in what we read in the Bible, what's going to happen when he returns. In Revelation, John, through the visions that God gave them, gives us a glimpse into the future. And through all these centuries of having this information, Bible scholars still can't come to an agreement on what this all means. We're really no different than the disciples in a lot of ways. That's the second interaction that we had with uh, uh, Jesus. The third one is perhaps the most well-known, and that's found in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. And this is where John, I think, gets his nickname. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, I think Thomas has been given a bad rap over the centuries with the uh, nickname Doubting Thomas. I can understand People thinking of him that way? I mean, Jesus did say, stop doubting and believe. But I don't believe Thomas was a doubter. I think he was merely looking for the evidence. He needed more than just an empty tomb as proof for himself. He needed to see Jesus. Someone else needed reassurance of Jesus. John the Baptist, when he was imprisoned, sent some of his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the one? Or are we to wait for another? 
In Luke chapter 7, verse 20, it says, when the men, and these were John's disciples, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus sent John's disciples back with a message. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. I don't believe John was doubting necessarily who Jesus was, but he needed to have the reassurance that he had the right guy. There are times in all of our lives we need to have that reassurance that we're following the right guy. And Jesus will give you that reassurance if you ask for it. It's interesting to note in the way that Jesus responded to both men. In both instances, Jesus did not rebuke either man harshly, but he answered them with love and with kindness. Reassurance for John, evidence for Thomas. For Thomas, the evidence was unmistakable, visible proof that Jesus was indeed alive. Jesus didn't come down hard because Thomas didn't believe what the other disciples told him. Jesus said to Thomas, you believe because you have seen. And what he said after that should put a smile on the face of everybody who calls Jesus Christ Lord and who chooses to follow him. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, if you're a Christian and you do nothing else to receive a blessing from God, and I, and I hope that's not the case, but if you do nothing else to receive a blessing from God, here's the blessing that is guaranteed to you. You are blessed because you have seen and you, uh, you have believed what you have not seen. Jesus gave Thomas the evidence that he was seeking. But what's more important is what Thomas did with that evidence. His response was to pronounce, my Lord and my God. Thomas didn't just accept the fact that Jesus had, raised from, had been risen from the dead, but he embraced Jesus as Lord and as God. See, it's not just having the evidence, but it's what you do with that evidence that makes a difference in a life. But what about others out there who are looking for the evidence? There are some well-known people in our world today. Lee Strobel uses journalism skills to look for the evidence that Jesus Christ was not real. And in the event of all of his journalistic skills, digging and looking, he actually realized this guy's for real. And he gave his life over to Christ. And he wrote a book along with it, The Case for Christ, along with others. Jim Warner Wallace became a Christian after he was previously an atheist at the age of 35 while he was using his investigation skills as a cold case detective in Los Angeles. You see, he too was looking into the evidence and he was looking into the evidence, into the eyewitness accounts that there are in the Gospels. And that's what these are. These are eyewitness accounts of what happened. And he was looking for the evidence. Is this real? Is it plausible? If this was in a court of law today, would these witnesses stand up? 
And he came to the conclusion that not only yes was this true, but I better do something with that evidence. And he gave his life over to Christ as well. Both men looked for the evidence, not believing in God and his son, and ended up becoming Christians. They're not the only ones. There's a lot of untold stories out there. What about those who are Christians who have doubts? Josh McDowell, another well-known author in our world today, told his son, who as a young man was having doubts about his faith, to follow the truth wherever it leads you. Here's what he confidently told his son while his son was doubting. I did not raise you to believe something because I told you. I raised you to follow after the truth. Seek the truth, and wherever it leads you, embrace it. I'm convinced if you really seek after truth, you'll end up or continue believing in Jesus, because Jesus is the truth. But follow the truth, even if you don't like it, even if it is uncomfortable. Seek after the truth. Mr. McDowell also taught his son to always look at both sides of the coin. In other words, don't discount the other side of an argument just because it's uncomfortable, just because you have a predisposition or presupposition against it. You should look for the evidence wherever it leads you. If you have children like Josh McDowell, don't think that you can just throw them into the deep end of the pool and expect them to be Olympic swimmers in just a couple of strokes. You have to equip your kids to look for the truth. You can't just expect them to be able to do that by um, their own nature. And if we take an honest look at our own lives, I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have had doubts of some kind in our Christian walk at some point. Minor, major, otherwise. It may be something as simple as, am I really following God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? You may be like Sean McDowell, Joshua's son, where you're having doubts about your own Christianity at some point in your life. And I've talked to very mature Christians who've gone through just that at some point in their life. Whatever the case, none of us are immune from a moment like Thomas when he needed to see the evidence. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by looking at people instead of looking at the Bible, but I wanted to bring out three examples of lives in today of people who needed to find that evidence. In Thomas's case, he didn't have to go looking for the answer. The answer came to find him when Jesus appeared to him. And wouldn't we all like to see that kind of evidence in our lives? But then we wouldn't have the joy of trusting by faith what God has revealed to us. In the case of Sean McDowell, Lee Strobel, Jim Warner, they went looking for the answer, and the answer was there to be found, but it took a lot of work. This wasn't an afternoon project for these men. It took many, many hours of investigation. In today's world of information and misinformation that's available in the form of mass media and the Internet, I believe we not only need to be teaching the truth in the Bible, but how to distinguish between truth of any kind versus uninformed opinion. Because there's a lot of it out there that's very easy to come across. We need to be teaching this to new Christians, mature Christians, our kids, our grandkids. We need to teach the youth today how to search for the truth themselves, not just accept what we say because we say it. Those days are long gone when that's going to happen. But we need to teach them how to look for the truth. We need to teach our children and ourselves to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. When Paul preached to them, 
They accepted with joy, but they didn't just accept it. They went and tested it against the scriptures to see if it was real, if it was true. Overcoming doubts, whether it's our own doubts or the doubts of others that we come into contact with, falls into two categories. The first categories will be the doubts or evidence seeking of those who don't believe in God and the Bible. The second category or group of people are the doubts or evidence of those who do believe in God, the God of the Bible. There's only one word different in each of those sentences, but the approach is a lot different from one to the other. In the first group, there's a need to first establish that the Bible is accurate, true, and represents God's design for mankind. You have to start there before you can go on to the group like those in category two. And the evidence is there. But you have to be careful if you search outside the Bible with the first group to distinguish what is accurate and what is inaccurate. The second group, because they already have that faith in God, is more about establishing a framework to test whether something or someone says is true or not true, biblically or elsewise. It's not just in the Bible that Christians need to do this, but everywhere. We need to learn to test what is taught against the truth that's taught in the Bible. Sometimes the two groups can seem to merge together, and it's hard to distinguish them, but the difference between the two categories still has to be remembered and respected. First, you have to come to the agreement that the Bible is true, accurate, and God's word for mankind. If you're going to have a conversation about truth today, you first have to establish what the word true even means. See, people look at the word true differently. Someone my age will say, if it is true, then it will work. Whereas the youth of today are more apt to say, if it works, then it is true. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but these can be miles apart from each other. Let's look at a practical example. Say you had a a leader in the church, a pastor, an elder, one who was standing up here Sunday after Sunday, preaching from God's word, preaching about God's love, his obedience, what he wants from us in his life. And then he goes home and he abuses his family. Well, somebody like myself will say, what he taught is true, but he never followed the truth. Somebody from a younger generation will probably say, what he taught can't be true, because if it was true, it would have worked, but it didn't work, so it can't be true. And you can see how these two sides... Just the simple turning of that phrase can be a huge difference in somebody's life. I came across a statistic, and take it for what it's worth, but it was uh, done in the U.S., and the question was put to a bunch of Boy Scouts. What's, what is truth? Where does truth come from? 84% of them said, it comes from me. It comes from myself. The question was put to Evangelical youth, 81% came to the same conclusion. The youth today have a subjective truth. They don't have an objective truth that's based on something. A lot of youth today believe truth is based on what I feel. The reason the truth is defined 
by youth today as being subjective is because it's not based on fidelity. But what does that mean? I know what infidelity means. But what does truth being based on fidelity means? See, I came across this definition in Webster's Dictionary. One of the definitions of truth is fidelity to an original or to a standard. To put it in another way, truth is being equal to or same as the original or standard. If you want to know something is true, you compare it to the original as your standard. Say I had a bottle, a liter of, of water, or at least what I thought was a bottle that was a liter of water, and you said, no, it's not a liter. It's close, but it's not a liter. We got into a discussion. Well, I could say, let's go to Paris, France, where the Institute for the um, Worldwide Weights and Measures are located. They've got the measurement for a liter there, and that's what everybody goes by. I could pour my bottle of water into there, and I could say, see, I told you. I could compare it to the original. Taking this back to the Bible, our social conscience has over centuries been modeled after what is in the Bible. If you want to change what is truth or redefine truth, you therefore have to stray from the original, that is the Bible. In other words, you can no longer have fidelity with the original, that is God. And that's what I believe society is doing in a lot of cases today. If we're going to engage the youth of today and teach our children and grandchildren how to sort through the avalanche known as the Internet, social media, New Age philosophy, we first have to teach them how to establish what is truth. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you've put your trust in him, then you already have the foundation to do just that. See, going back to Thomas here, After Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered them and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus didn't say, just, I am the way, I am the life. But he also said, I am the truth. And this is where it really brings it all home. Jesus was saying that he is equal or the same as the original. The original what? God the Father, Yahweh. God wasn't saying, I'm just like the original. God wasn't saying that I'm speaking for the original. Jesus was saying, I am the original. That's part of the mystery of the Trinity. I can't explain it to you, but I'll accept it by faith because Jesus said it. He is equal to or the same as the original. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Father are one. How do we know it's true? Because Jesus said it. I can take it by faith, but I can also take it by the eyewitness accounts that record it in the gospel and all the evidence that points to those eyewitness accounts being accurate, true, and reliable. There's a lot of proof and evidence that point to the accuracy that Jesus Christ God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have that intimate relationship with themselves and they've chosen to share it with us. Thomas was not one of the prominent disciples in the Bible like John or Peter, but there still is a lot that we can glean from those three moments in time that we have with him. In the first case, 
when Jesus said, let us go with him that we may die also. We need to follow Christ no matter what the cost. Thomas was ready to do so even to death. What cost are you willing to put in front of you in order to follow Christ? Your life, relationships, your bank account, whatever God calls you to be, that's what it needs to be. Secondly, we need to not be afraid to ask for directions. Thomas says, I don't know where you're going. How am I going to follow you? He spoke up. We need to speak up when we don't know the answer. But more importantly, we need to listen for that answer. Perhaps we need to listen the way that Isaiah was forced to listen when he was in the desert hiding in the cave. God sent earthquakes. He sent fire. He sent wind. He sent it all to get his attention. And then it was in a quiet whisper that he spoke to Isaiah. And we need to listen ourselves. Thirdly, don't discount the impossible with God because all things are possible, even being raised from a grave. We need to look to Christ. We need to look to God. We need to be willing to put ourselves in a situation of faith, just as it says, so that we could be blessed. We don't have time, but um, I came up with a list of ten verses that are helpful of how to look for the truth. The reminders. It's not a point by point, do these steps and you will find the truth. But it's reminders for us as Christians of what we need to pay attention to when we're looking for that truth. Just very quickly, the points that I drew out of them was, number one, you need to ask. You need to have faith. Don't be deceived by the folly of today. What's the motivation for somebody speaking? Don't be led astray. Be cautious. Use the whole word of God. Test what you hear. Listen to the Spirit and follow the Spirit wherever He leads you. Um, we don't have time to go into these, but if you want a copy, I've got a few copies, just come up to me afterwards and I'll give you a copy if you want one to uh, have a look at or for your curiosity. Does the group have uh, a closing? I'll invite them to come back up and uh, after we're finished, then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your forgiveness in our lives. I thank you that you loved us so much that even if there was just one person on this earth, you would have still sent your son to die for them. You loved us so much that no cost was too great. We need to reciprocate that. We need to say to you that no cost is too great to follow you, not in this world. For what we serve in this world, who we serve in this world, how we serve in this world, leads us to an eternal salvation, an eternal glory, an eternal reward that we can't even begin to fathom here on this earth. But until we reach that day, Lord, help us to be your servant, your ambassadors to those around us. Help us to be the voice that at times seems to be disappearing in this world. Help us to be that voice that speaks to the confusion, to the unrest that's around us. Help us to be who you want us to be. I pray for these things in your name. Amen.